0: I want to just uh, take you back in history a little bit, uh, further than even some of those pictures that you just saw out of the, the heritage of our, uh, of our fellowship here. 1774 was the year. A leader by the name of John Adams boldly declared Someday I see a union of 13 states, a new nation, independent from Parliament and the King of England. He was the first to express the idea publicly. And in just a few years later, against all odds, the United States of America was born. Fifteen years later, an Englishman by the name of William Wilberforce stood before the British Parliament and lobbied for a day when slaves would no longer be bought and sold like farm animals. It took decades to get it done. But eventually, the slave trade was officially abolished all across the United Kingdom. In the 1800s, the Wright brothers began to dream of a day when vetted women could fly. And as they had this vision of, of men taking flight, it, it led them to that historic first flight on the sandy beaches of North Carolina. And now there are airports all over the world. Many of you will be traveling through them in the next few days. In the 1940s. Billy Graham and a few of his college buddies gathered together, and they dreamed of of proclaiming the gospel all over the world, of filling stadiums and presenting the gospel to those who were far from God. And as he continued that ministry through the years, over 250 million people heard Billy Graham proclaim the gospel live And over a billion people have heard the gospel proclaimed over television, radio, and other venues because a handful of buddies had a God-given dream. August 28th, 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. stood on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial and he began to talk about a dream A God-given dream is so historic that it galvanized the civil rights movement in our nation. It is still referred to as the I Have a Dream speech, and no doubt you can name some of those today. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the conduct of their character. I have a dream that one day right here in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. And on and on that powerful rhetoric went to see concluded with those words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. And what these and hundreds of other stories remind us of is that there is just incredible, incredible power in a God-inspired vision, in a God-inspired dream. And what I want to talk to you about a little bit this morning is a vision, a dream. It's a vision that didn't begin with us. It's actually a a vision, a dream that began with 14 people in the year 1870. In 1870, 14 people in this community had a dream. They had a dream of a church where people could assemble for worship. They had a dream of the gospel going out to their neighbors, their friends, and their co-workers. They had a dream, a vision, of being used in a a little community of Fort Mill, South Carolina to perhaps partner with others and make a difference all over the world. It's a dream It's a vision that predates any of us. Sometimes when we're doing our welcome to the family seminar, I tell folks I've always considered it a a, a kind of an advantage to be a part of a church that's been around for a long time. And I know that's not necessarily the cool thing. You're supposed to like start everything new and stuff. But it just helps me. It helps remind me that God was at work a long time before I ever showed up. (laughs) And by the way, he was at work a long time before you showed up too. And God's going to be at work a long time after we've run our lap. But we get to hang on to the baton for a while, for a season, and I think for a God-given reason. And the question is, while we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us, While we'll learn from anybody we can learn from, how do we run well the race that God has set before us? What does it look like for us to take that baton and run with all of our strength and all of our might to the glory of God? What does that look like for you and me in a Fort Mill that's very, very different than it was in 1870? (laughs) A Fort Mill that was very, very different than it was in 1970s. Some of those pictures were from that era. A Fort Mill that was different in many ways than it was even in the year 2000. In a world that is rapidly changed. And we could take time to document a lot of those changes. So this is what I want to do for the next few weeks. And I'm kind of setting the table for that this morning. What I want to do is... is Build and stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us. And again, I'm humbled. I'm humbled when I read in the history of men and women who sold cattle and mortgaged their homes to to keep the church going through the Depression and other eras. And just to know, God, we stand on the shoulders of men and women who had a vision worth sacrificing for, worth pursuing with all of their being. And what I want to do is, is for us to think about that again. We've, the, every generation, I think, has to refine the vision, kind of refocus it, redream it for themselves, uh, articulate it in a language that maybe makes sense uh, to them and to their unique context. And, and to that end, uh, on a leadership level, we've entered into, really over a year ago, a process Uh, called Church Unique, and the basic concept is every one of us is unique individually. I mean, we have a lot in common, right? I mean, you know, we have so much more in common than we have different. And yet, there is also a uniqueness. We have unique fingerprints and voice prints and eyes and uh, heart rhythms, brain waves, all those things. There is a uniqueness to each individual. And as surely as there is a uniqueness to each individual, there's a uniqueness to each local church. And there are some things that we absolutely have in common. If we believe the same Bible, if we worship the same God, if we follow the same Lord Jesus Christ, and we have probably much more in common than we do apart, and yet that doesn't deny the fact that there is a uniqueness, that God in His sovereignty has designed each of us individually and uniquely, but He has also designed each local church to be unique and to follow its God-given design. And so as we walk through that, we say, God, help us to understand for this season, for this lap around the track holding the baton, what does it mean for us to to uniquely be the church that you want us to be. God, we don't need to be a cheap imitation of somebody else. I mean, learn from anybody else you can learn from, right? Uh, But don't waste your one and only life trying to be somebody that you're not. And for a local church, don't waste your one and only opportunity to run your leg of the race trying to be somebody else. Be uniquely who God has called you to be. And with that in mind, I kind of want to just unpack, and it's going to be a little bit like drinking from a fire hydrant because there's going to be like tons of information here, but I'm going to try to give you one picture at the end that I hope will be enough to kind of lodge in your brain here and, and, and to begin to walk forward with this. And so as we walk through this journey... We talked about kind of a vision and a vision frame and and kind of going to do this a little bit backwards in in the sense of probably if you have a great picture, you get the picture first and then you pick a frame to go around it. Right. I'm going to talk to you about the frame first and then I want to talk last about the picture. So if you envision in your mind a a four sided frame. All right. And we're going to leave the, the center wide open for this point. There are four sides to this frame. And in our church unique kind of framework, if you will, we have four sides to this vision frame. And I want to just kind of walk you through the four sides of that frame and then bring you to, uh, to the picture in the middle as, as we close. The first side of the frame, if you'll just kind of track with me this morning, let's call mission. Uh, mission. Mission is the first side of the frame. And if you're going to talk about the mission of a Bible-believing church, if you're going to talk about the mission of, of a church, I always say, you know what? This isn't my church. This isn't your church. We get to be a part of it, but it's actually Jesus Christ's church. He bought and paid for it with his blood, right? And because he bought and paid for it with his blood, he gets to tell us what the mission is. And the good news is, he has, hasn't left that really uh, ambiguous. He's, he's made it pretty clear. There's a lot of passages, and you can't talk about, I don't think, the mission of a church without talking about the Great Commission passage, Matthew 28. Let me just remind you of those words beginning in verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, he is, he is uh, meeting post-resurrection his uh, disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He gives us these marching orders to to, to make a dent in the world, to impact the world by going into all the world and and making disciples. Disciples who, who know, but disciples who obey, observe everything I have commanded you. And in that mission, he has promised to be with us to the very end of the age. But there's also many other scriptures in the New Testament that speak to the mission of the church. Peter reminds us that in everything that we do, in everything we pursue, it is to be done to the glory of God. In order that in everything, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. And so as you think about a mission, you think about in everything, he is to be glorified. You can't think about the mission of the church, I don't think, without making sure you touch bases with Acts 1-8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Again, these commissioning words of Jesus. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. And just a reminder that no matter where you live, that's just the starting place for fulfilling the mission that your mission includes the world, that God has a world on his heart, and those whose hearts beat after him need to have a world on their heart as well, beginning right where they are. Are. And then as Paul talked about his unique calling and fleshing out his God-given vision and mission, he said, Him we proclaim. There is the proclamation central to this mission. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul reminds us that central to this mission is proclamation. Central to this mission is is the maturing of those who come to know Christ, but central is also effort, toil, struggling It's hard work, it's labor intensive, but it's not just in our own strength, but it's in the strength, the energy that he provides that so powerfully works within us. And so as we we wrestled with those biblical truths and we said, God, as we begin to kind of put this frame together, help us to articulate that understanding of mission and and no phrase can adequately perhaps capture all of those things, but trying to wordsmith them and put them together, Said, let's let's talk about this first edge this first side of the frame in these terms our mission is to be about glorifying god because you do that in everything you do glorifying god by proclaiming christ and making disciples across the street and around the world. If you have been a part of this church for a number of years, you have heard that terminology across the street and around the world. It is just part of the DNA. It's part of the uniqueness of who we are as a church. And so as we began to think about framing this picture, we just said the mission is always to be about glorifying God. It always has to glorify God. How we do, what we do, and the way that we do it has to be glorifying God. Central to that is proclaiming Christ. Christ. Christ is always central to our proclamation but it is about making disciples maturing them into fully devoted followers of Christ and we do so beginning right where we are it may take you across the street even as Fort Mill keeps adding new streets right it may take you across the hall or across the cubicle it may take you across the track but it is also to extend all across the world the first side of the frame, glorifying God by proclaiming Christ and making disciples across the street and around the world. But then we want to go to the second side of that frame. The second side of the frame we're going to call measures. How do you measure that? How do you measure that that making disciples and proclaiming Christ? And there there are lots of measurements. And actually when you start to begin to write out, well, what does it mean to be a mature follower of Jesus Christ? You begin to fill up a lot of whiteboards and a lot of pages. Well, this would be true. This would be true. This would be true. This would be true. And and it almost becomes overwhelming and it's kind of like what I see even a lot of organizations organizations, whether they're profit or uh, not-for-profit, is that sometimes they have so much information it's kind of like all these things are true, but it's 16 pages single spaced and nobody can remember them, right? (laughs) And and so they don't really have any impact on what you do day to day. And so as we wrestled with a lot of those things, we just kept coming back to some terminology that, that had developed just in recent years for us. And that is kind of three key phrases that in the end, the measurement of of if we're doing what God's called us to do is these three phrases are actually going to be true in people's lives. And the first phrase is, again, familiar words to some of you around here, a disciple is one who lives like Jesus lived who lives like Jesus lived so that my character, my conduct is more and more becoming like the character and the conduct of Jesus Christ. That more and more my character is shaped. Uh, We are to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ so that I, I respond out of a character that's more and more the character of Christ. My conduct, my words, my actions, my responses, all more and more become aligned with Jesus Christ so that progressively, and we get, it. we understand I get it I understand sometimes it's three steps forward and two steps back sometimes it feels like one step forward and three steps back right I understand it's not always like a straight line up and to the right so it's, it's steps and sometimes it has ebbs and flows but over the course of time am I moving in that direction that I am more and more living like Jesus lived more and more my character and my conduct reflects accurately the life of of Jesus Christ. And if that's going to be true, I'm also going to be one who loves like Jesus loved we have the, this sense of, of, of relationships, that my relationships uh, matter. The great commandment is to love God with all of your being and to love others as yourself. Relationships really matter to God. And, and so the question is, if I am really becoming more and more like Christ, does it show up in the relationships of my life? Does it show up in my relationship with God so that He who loved me, that more and more I love Him, but also in my relationships with others? Are my relationships increasingly by that 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love. Jesus uh, prayed and Jesus taught one of the distinguishing marks of his followers was going to be the way that they loved, particularly the way that they loved one another. And so if I want to measure, am I kind of making progress in this thing, I can look at the relationships of my life. Am I increasingly, if imperfectly, loving like Jesus loved A disciple is one who lives like Jesus lived, character and conduct, loves like Jesus loved. That's about the relationships of our life, but also leaves behind, leaves behind what Jesus left behind. What we understand is that Jesus had a mission. Jesus had a purpose and it was what he did, but it was also what he left behind. And and you think about what did Jesus leave behind? And I, I think about kind of three large categories, if you will. One, he left behind kind of proclamation or teaching. He taught, he was a communicator of truth. And that is to be true of every follower of his. That doesn't mean you'll ever be on a platform or up in front of a classroom. It doesn't mean that you need to go into the office tomorrow morning and jump up on the desk and say, Thus saith the Lord, right? But it means that in those conversations, in those communications, over a cup of coffee or a meal or in your home or the backyard fence or at the ball game or whatever it is, that, that you are seeing and seizing opportunities to be a gossiper of the gospel. To be a communicator of God's truth into the networks that you are a part of. He communicated truth, but he also touched people in some very practical ways, didn't he? And Jesus left behind a legacy of lives touched with healing touches, uh, uh, some practical help along the way. And I think that needs to mark the followers of Christ that they leave behind a legacy of lives that have been touched. Uh, maybe it's encouragement. Maybe it's a simple act of service. Maybe it's, it's helping someone uh, tackle a problem or carry a load uh, that they can't carry or whatever it might be. But the, those practical acts of love and service that leave behind a legacy. But there's one other thing that Jesus very strategically left behind that I think is instructive for all his followers. And that is that he poured into intentionally a small group of people who would be able to carry on the mission. That he, intent, he taught the masses, but he invested in a few. And in much the same way as his followers, we need to be communicators of truth to anybody that we can. But also, are there a few that we're investing in? Investing in so that they'll be able to carry on the mission. Maybe in different settings, different networks, maybe throughout different generations. A fully devoted follower of Christ, a disciple, leaves behind what jesus left behind and so this is the second side of the frame and i realize tons of information we could go much deeper on all these things but i'm just kind of trying to give you the framework here this morning let me go to the third side of the frame the third side of the frame uh, let's call values a- and when we have taught in our welcome to the family setting we've taught 12 values we had 12 kind of core values and that seemed like a real biblical number I mean disciples and 12 nations and all those things and uh, can't get much better than that but as we begin to wrestle with that realize that you know even that seems is a large number for us to kind of uh, keep uh, keep a handle on and some of them uh, could even cross over at times and so uh, the workshop kind of forced us to kind of shrink that number down and really hone in what are the values that kind of are going to inform the pursuit of this vision and the fulfillment of this mission and so we have a half a dozen Uh, cut it in half six values and I'm going to be preaching through these over the next six weeks so I'm just going to uh, hit them on the run this morning the first one is biblical authority the foundational value is the authority of God's Word, that we truly believe the Bible is God's inspired and errant Word. And because of that, we are convinced that it is absolutely true. And so the Bible is going to be central to all we do, whether it's in a worship setting or in a classroom environment or whatever it might be, we want the Bible to be central. The first question we want to ask on the front end of decision-making, whether that's personal or as a group or whatever it might be, is what does the the Bible say what does the Bible say has the Bible already spoken on this issue is there a clear command of God is there a clear principle from God's word that applies in this situation because that's the authoritative voice in our life that is our guideline for living so biblical authority is a foundational value a second value is faith-filled prayer Faith filled prayer. And you cannot read the Gospels. You cannot read about the life of Jesus without understanding how central prayer was to his life. If it was central to the life of Jesus, don't you think it ought to be central to the lives of his followers? Mark talks about the first chapter that he got up a great while before the day. He's early in the morning at prayer. At significant junctures of his ministry, he's praying. Toward the very end, he's crying out in prayer in the garden of gethsemane on and on and on it goes interestingly enough of all the things the disciples saw in jesus life and said jesus would you teach us to do this the only thing we have a record of them asking jesus specifically to teach them to do was to pray was to pray and they learn that lesson because you open up the book of Acts and prayer saturates the book of Acts. Now look in the letters of Paul and prayers saturate those letters. The, the, the prayers that they prayed were not mamby-pamby prayers, right? They were, they were bold. They were daring. They were faith-filled, mission-centered prayers. And that is to be the mark of a follower of Jesus Christ. That is to be the mark of a church that is uniquely following Jesus christ biblical authority faith-filled prayer and transformational relationships transformational relationships we really believe that god's plan a and transformation has always included people go back to the very first book the very first few chapters of the bible and one of the first statements about human beings is it was not good for man to be alone That before sin ever entered into the picture, there was a need, we have a need for a relationship with God and a relationship with other people. One of the key things that God uses in transforming us into the image of Christ is other people. And sometimes they irritate the heck out of us, right? (laughs) But that's just sandpaper God's using in our lives. Sometimes they stretch us. Sometimes they encourage us. Sometimes they pray for us. Sometimes they model for us. Sometimes they believe in us when we don't believe ourselves. The scripture says, iron sharpens iron. So one man sharpens another. That we need transformational relationships. We need to be in relationships that that are better and deeper than more surface just hi, How you doing? Fine. How are you? That if we're going to experience God's best, we have to be in community. We have to experience the power of transformational relationships. A fourth value that uh, kind of frames this uh, pursuit of uh, vision and mission is Christ-centered families christ-centered families and what we understand is that families come in all shapes and sizes families go through different stages and different seasons some are single some are couples some uh, have, have, have gone through the, the pain of divorce uh, uh, some are, are are doing well some are struggling some are empty nesters some are widows or yeah, on and on the list goes families have all sorts of different shapes They go through different stages and different seasons. But the one thing that needs to be central in all of that is that Christ. Christ is central. Central in that family. Central in the life. Again, you go back to Scripture. God established the family. He established the family. The family is foundational to everything that God purposes to do in our lives and in the world. Families are far from perfect because they're filled with imperfect people like us, right? But those families are to be centered in Jesus Christ. That's why we invest. That's why when you come to a disciple life cycle like you're going to come to tonight, there's going to be opportunities to grow in a marriage. There's going to be some parenting things going on because we value christ-centered families and again we'll talk more about this two more fifth value is radical obedience this was one of those wordsmithing things that you wrestled with because we don't want to use words like radical just because it's it's trendy or it's new or that sort of thing but but we kept coming back to that in our wrestlings because we wanted to communicate something uh, that, that the obedience that we want to value is not is not cultural Christianity. It's not just kind of do enough to be considered religious or spiritual. It's not what, what one writer calls cruise control obedience. You know, you kind of get to a comfortable speed and you lock in that cruise control so you don't have to think about it anymore. But radical obedience is that that picture of Paul who talked about running the race to the end, of, of straining, you saw the verse earlier, struggling, toiling with all his energy. It's, it's that picture of God, I want to be completely obedient to you in every area of my life. I don't want this to just be a cultural thing because I'm in the South. I don't want this just to be a cruise control thing. I'm kind of at my comfortable level of obedience. But God, I want to be all in and all out for you in every area of my life. I was convinced to the core of my being that when my life aligns with yours, my life works best. It's best for me, it brings benefit to others, and it brings glory to God. And that's what happens when I push toward, when I strain toward, when I aim for radical, complete obedience and so we want to lift that up as a value and the last one that we'll talk about in this series is missional lifestyle and again that can be one of those trendy words but basically what we mean by that is just a simple phrase everybody an everyday missionary everybody an everyday missionary Regardless of, of what you do for a living, regardless of, of what your education level is, regardless of what your age is, regardless of what abilities you have, that for all followers of Jesus Christ to understand, I am a missionary. Every day, everybody as an everyday missionary, that my life is to be lived on mission, that I am on mission with God where I live, where I work, and where I play. In those venues, God has called me to live on mission with Him, that God has strategically sprinkled us out, right? In all sorts of work environments, in all different neighborhoods, He's strategically sprinkled us out in all sorts of different social settings. Why? Because he wants to use us there to be on mission with him. That God is already at work in all of those different environments and he's join, inviting us to join him on mission there. So part of that value we want to keep lifting up is everybody, everybody, young, old, male, female, doesn't matter wherever your education, everybody has an everyday missionary. That's the third side to this frame. Now let me bring you to the fourth side as we kind of complete this frame. And again, I realize this is like a lot of information, but uh, hopefully it'll give you some framework of understanding. Strategy. Strategy. How do you kind of get there? And, And again, church unique. There's, there's similarities of every church, but how do we talk about it in a way that is uniquely us? And, and it's not about everything being new, but we, as we looked, I said, you know, we feel like God has kind of uniquely shaped in us this, this strategy that we've built around the word grace, G-R-A-C-E. And that's with intention because we realize it all begins by God's grace. He's going to carry it through to completion by his grace. And it's all empowered through and through by his grace. And so just using that word grace reminds us, even as we talk about these personal practices, if you will, we understand that they are all built on, enabled by, and empowered by his grace. And so again, for some of you that have been around here for a few years, you, I hope, have heard this several times in different environments. G-R-A-C-E. The G is for grow to grow through personal spiritual growth habits we say it this way nobody can read your bible for you nobody can have a time alone with god for you nobody can give for you nobody can can do some of these these basic spiritual growth habits for you no one can study god's word for you you, you, there are things that you have to do to put yourself in a place for God's spirit to work fully and completely in you. You set the sails, if you will, through those spiritual growth habits to catch the wind of God's spirit and what he's doing. And so integral in that is grow through personal spiritual growth habits. That's why we offer uh, some six spiritual habits courses or whatever it may be along the way. Just some things to help us. That's why we have some different seminars and stuff along the way to help us hone and develop and refine and refire up some of those personal spiritual growth habits. The R is for right place of service. We believe every member of the body is gifted for ministry and gifted for service. It looks different for all of us and it may look different for you at different seasons of your life but you are to serve. You are equipped to serve. How are you serving within the context of the body of Christ? And so we want to encourage you. We want to help equip you to find your right place of service. And the A is to attend weekly worship. Attend weekly worship. It's it's that one in seven rhythm that God built into creation. That that one in seven where one day out of seven, I step away. I step away from the routines. I step away from from kind of the the, the treadmill, if you will. And I I, I refocus. I, I refocus. I focus my attention on God. And it's not that's the only time I can worship or the only place I can worship. But there's something about setting that rhythm up in my life where I gather with God's people that I I recalibrate my life on a weekly basis in that setting back to him and so part of that strategy is personally to attend weekly worship the C is to connect to a group connect to a group again if you've been around here you've talked heard us talk about don't just settle for being in rows but get in circles there's only a limited amount of connection that can take place looking at the back of somebody's head right Uh, you, You need to be in environments where you can begin to get to know people. If you're not already connected, start with an ABF class as an adult. Start with one of our Disciple Life seminars. Maybe you'll want to be a part of a small group. Maybe you'll want to even uh, accept an invitation at some point in the fall to a journey group or something along the way. But connect to a group. Place yourself in an environment. Student ministry has small groups. On and on it goes. On Sunday mornings, children's ministry has small groups. We want you to connect to a group because relationships are transformational. And then the E is engage in the Great Commission. Engage in the Great Commission. And that ties in exactly that value of a missional lifestyle. Again, this will look different. Maybe at different seasons of your life. Maybe when you've got young kids, it looks one way. Maybe in the middle age, it looks maybe. Maybe maybe if your health is not as good as it used to be or something, that'll look different. But as long as you're drawing breath, you and I are called to engage in that great commission, to, to proclaim Christ, to make disciples across the street and around the world, to engage in that, and it'll look different for us at different seasons of our life but to fully engage in that have you thought that that is actually one of the things you can't do in heaven you can worship in heaven you will i i convinced the scripture says you'll serve in heaven you'll relate in heaven all of those things but one thing you will not be able to do in heaven that you can only do on your life in this earth is to engage in the great commission you have X number of years, and it may not be as many as you think, to engage fully in impacting lives for all eternity. And so the calling is to engage, engage fully in the Great Commission. Now, that, those are the four sides of the frame. Mission, measures, values, and strategy. And now we want to put a picture in, in, in the center of this. And, and, and we're going to begin picturing it with a frame or, or a words. And then I'm actually going to give you a picture up on the screen that I hope will, will help you to understand. As we wrestle with this, God, what does it uniquely mean for us to be your church in this setting, in this season? And As we wrestle with that, we, we kind of came to, to a, a statement that goes like this you've already seen it on the front of a worship folder the vision statement unleashing unleashing a movement of christ-centered spirit empowered world changers now again that we can make this much much longer because there's lots of words you know god glorifying spirit led on and on and on this goes but wanted to keep it succinct enough so that we could it could lodge in a brain. And the words are, are intentional. The idea is unleashing. In a sense, it's like understanding God is moving, and we, we want to unleash. We want to unleash anything that would inhibit the full expression of what God wants to do in and through our lives. And we don't want this to be just a drip, drip, but God, would you allow us to be a part of a movement, unleashing a movement, a movement of men and women who live life Christ-centered, spirit-empowered, and they understand that they are invited to be be and commanded to be and empowered to be world changers, to change the world, to change the eternities of men and women. And so as we think about things that are going on, as we think about what's going on in a preschool hall, in a children's hallway, even this morning, we want to begin to think of that in terms of, God, we're not just babysitting. This isn't just about child care. This isn't just about keeping kids busy. This is about unleashing Christ-centered, spirit-empowered world changers. Part of of that picture is, and some of us have been praying this now for over a decade, God, we just see a day. We see a day when there will be people scattered all over this world that will trace part part of their journey to Fort Mill First Baptist Church. We dream of a day when the sun will never set. The sun will never set on somebody that traces some of their heritage to this place. And this place helped to unleash a movement of Christ-centered, Spirit-empowered world changes. That there are people taking the gospel all over the world so that the sun never sets on the influence of this church body. Why are we going to invest hundreds of hours and thousands of dollars in a, in a, in a weekend uh, for students this coming weekend? Why, why are we going to invest in that? Because students don't have enough to do in this area? Are you kidding me? I have way too much to do, right? Why? Because we want to unleash a movement of Christ-centered, spirit-empowered world changers. Because we are convinced to the core of our being that some of those students who are going to be in a home this weekend are going to be difference makers in the world. Maybe it's going to be in the world of business. Maybe it's going to be in the world of government. Maybe it's going to be in the world of education. Maybe it's going to be in the military. Maybe it's going to be in the entertainment industry. Maybe some of them are going to be those who take the gospel all over the world. But what we are praying for and convinced of and what we are investing in is that there are children on our hallways right now who are going to live their life all out. They are going to be Christ-centered, spirit-empowered world changers. We are convinced that there are going to be students who are going to be a part of this uprising weekend who are going to be unleashed on the world as Christ-centered, spirit-empowered world changers. That things are going to change. Families are going to change. Organizations are going to change. Cultures are going to change. Eternities are going to change because of what has been unleashed by God through this church family. That's the picture that I want you to begin to have. And so if I can put a picture to those words, the best picture that I have come up with, and, and maybe this is just me, some of you may have much better ones, is the picture of an aircraft carrier, right? And doesn't it look warm, by the way, on the deck of that aircraft carrier right now, right? But an aircraft carrier is not a Coast Guard cutter, no offense to Coast Guard cutters, they do a great work, but you don't use aircraft carriers to chase down drug runners or to rescue somebody whose boat has flipped off the coast of North Carolina, right? A aircraft carrier is not even a battleship. It's often accompanied by battleships. And an aircraft carrier for sure is not a cruise ship, Right? I mean, they're not sending out daily updates about the buffet on the Lido deck, right? I mean, that that doesn't happen on an aircraft carrier, right? The aircraft carrier is not so much about what happens on that ship as to what gets released from that ship. And some of you could speak to this much more intelligently than I could because you've served in such a setting. But... Think with me, if you will, that aircraft carrier exists to launch planes, to launch planes with payloads to get a job done, right? I mean, they, they, they strategically position this ship and it's huge. Billions of dollars invested there to launch these planes and the planes come back they don't come back and say, well, that's, you know, well done, let's, let's build a museum. No, 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 they come back, let's repair them, let's refuel them, let's rearm them, let's give the, the, the pilots, the others, a little, a little rest and relaxation, build them back up, and then let's send them back out, right? It's always about sending them back out. The aircraft carrier exists to send those aircrafts out, to make a difference in the world. That's the picture that I want you to have of this local church. We exist not so much to have nice meetings here. I hope our meetings are good. It's not so much about what even happens here on Sunday morning, as important as that might be, or Sunday night or whatever it might be. What matters is, does what happened in those environments launch people out? Is it launch people out as Christ-centered, spirit-empowered world changers? That's when we know we're beginning to be the church that God's called us to be. When God uses us to unleash, unleash a movement. Not a drip, not just one or two uh, one-off individuals who get it, but a movement of Christ-centered, spirit-empowered world changers. That means me, and that means you. Living life on mission with God. Christ-centered, spirit-powered, world changers. Launched from the USS First Baptist Church, Fort Mill, if you will. All right? That's the picture that I want you to walk away from this morning. That our church is an aircraft carrier. Launching people out to make a difference in the world. And let me try to bring this home just kind of with a statement and a question and then give you a couple moments to begin to to chew on this. The statement is that every one of us is leaving behind a wake. Aircraft carrier leaves behind a big wake. Boats leave behind a wake. The jets leave behind a wake. All of us leave behind a wake as we go through this thing called life. That wake includes how we treated people, how we related to people, the relationships of our life, but it also leaves behind an impact, what was the impact of my life? When it's all said and done, what did I actually do with my one and only life? Said in the form of a question, what am I going to do with my one and only life that's going to matter for all eternity? When it's all said and done, and it will all be said and done, what's going to be the wake that I leave behind? What is going to be included in that wake that's really going to matter for all eternity? One of the disadvantages slash advantages of what I do is you end up attending a lot of funerals. (laughs) And I consider that a disadvantage in the sense, honestly, it's not my favorite thing to do. (laughs) But it's an advantage because it does give you a unique perspective on life. And I know that funerals are real different depending upon the wake that that person's left behind. For some people, it's it's almost a joy, if you it could be a joy, to be a part of a funeral because of the wake they left behind, because of the eternity difference they made. For some people, I'll be honest, and I'll just not use anybody from here, but, you know, it's kind of, Honestly, sad to come to the end of a life and say, Well, they really love their yard and the Cincinnati Reds. Really? That's what you did with your one and only life. You kept a really nice yard and you cheered the Cincinnati Reds or whatever your team is. We're all going to leave behind a wake. The question is what kind what are you going to do with your one and only life that's going to matter for all eternity what we want to do as a local church is help launch you launch you out to leave an eternity mattering wake launch you out as a christ-centered spirit-empowered world changer and so the invitation today is real simple The invitation is to be a part of a movement. I don't know exactly how that's going to look for you, but to be a part of a movement. A movement of of making an eternal difference in the lives of others. Be a part of a movement of of launching out men and women who are Christ-centered and spirit-empowered world changers. Investing your life in a way that's going to matter for all eternity. That's the invitation. The invitation is to invest your life in a way that helps change the world one life at a time through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to be about. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray together, please? Father, I I just thank you that you are still at work. Lord, that you have been at work for centuries, but Lord, that you have been at work uniquely in this place since 1870. And, Father, that we get to take the baton and we get to run. We get to run a lap. We get to to run our leg of the race, uh, building on those who have come before us and stretching out to to hand something worth handing off to those who come behind us. And, Father, I just pray. I pray, Lord, that you would stir in my head and my heart. I pray that you would stir in every head and every heart here a, a calling, a sense of holy discontent, a holy obligation, a holy calling to be... Be a part of a movement of Christ-centered, spirit-empowered world changers. Father, I just ask you to move, to do what only you can do. And as you just begin to just sit again before the Lord, I'm just going to ask you to take just a a moment or two in this setting. And there's some personal questions on that that note-taking guide. And I'm just going to ask you to scan those very quickly right now. And and maybe just begin to think about what kind of wake do you want to leave? And I hope these are questions that honestly you'll deal with for days. What are you going to do with your one and only life that's going to matter for all eternity? And what would it really look like for you to be a part of a movement of Christ-centered, spirit-empowered world changers? What adjustments would you need to make in your life to consistently live this out? I'm just going to ask you as a beginning point to just maybe just one of those questions just as caught your eye, just begin to write out a word, a phrase, a sentence, just say, God, this this is my response to you. This is part of my response to you today. But even as you're doing that, I'm just going to remind you that in the back of our worship,